Welcome to the Black Belter Podcast. You're listening to episode 65. This week's guest is Dr. Carl Langan Evans. Carl has a background in WT Taekwondo, competing for Team GB for a number of years, and even had some time competing for Ireland. Since retiring, Carl has been part of high performance coaching teams for a number of Taekwondo countries, qualifying athletes for Olympic Games. Carl is an applied sports physiologist and nutritionist, and now spends most of his time as a researcher at John Moores University in Liverpool as part of their science in sport slash PhD nutrition performance science and innovation team. Carl also works with some of Britain's top fighters in both MMA and boxing to help them make weight. Uh, to name a few would be Molly McCann and Jazza Dickens. Today I chat to Carl about how to make weight effectively, the difference between chronic and acute weight loss, the importance of carbs for fueling performance, supplementation and more. Please remember that if you enjoy the podcast that you rate, review and subscribe as it really does help the show grow. But for now, let's get into it. Okay, so what's up, Carl? How are you? Thanks, man, for coming on. Yeah, no, no problems at all, mate. Happy to be invited on. Yeah, so like I've had I've had quite a few people on with I suppose different areas around martial arts and that, and like with psychology, I've had some people on with trend condition, but I haven't had anybody on really with nutrition. And I kind of came across some of the, like, your like some of the stuff you do on like line or like some of the research and stuff that you you've done and that and been involved with. So I said it'd be good yeah. to get you on, and uh, share some of your knowledge. Uh, I suppose people for people listening, maybe if you want to give a brief overview of like who you are what you do, who you do it with. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name's Dr. Carl Langan-Evans. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow in Liverpool, John Moores University, in, which is based in Liverpool. And I'm currently working as part of Science in Sports, so the nutrition company Science in Sport, their performance solutions division. So I'm part of um, science and innovation, basically doing a load of studies in and around the use of, of supplements, sports foods, and ergogenic aids for performance. Um, my background's actually in um, in combat sports, so I have, was involved in uh, Taekwondo, WT Taekwondo, for 25 years. Um, Long time. So, I, yeah, I, uh, I was a competitor who did marginally well, uh, more so as a junior. So I represented Great Britain at the Junior Olympic Games in 2002, where I won gold. Um and I, as a senior, I was aiming to go to the Beijing Olympic Games. I actually uh, competed and represented the Republic of Ireland from 2004 till 2006. Um, I had a little bit of a, a swap over. Obviously, I've got Irish heritage with the, the Langan side of my name. My family are from um, Castlebar in County Mayo. So um, I represented uh, Ireland in two European championships. And, uh, yeah, I ended up retiring quite early. Um, it was starting to get really difficult to, to make weight. So I used to compete in minus 58 kilos, coming down from like 68 kilos. And obviously we didn't know a lot back then, so it was really tough. So I ended up retiring and getting into coaching. Uh, and as I, when I was coaching, when I was competing, I was on a university scholarship and I, I got S&C and nutrition support and psychology and physiotherapy. So when I started coaching, I kind of realised that the need for my athletes to have that because uh, we had some really good guys who were representing Great Britain on like national teams and and going away winning international medals and things so um, we didn't have the money to hire somebody so I actually decided to go back to university 
Um, I applied to do a master's of sport physiology. So I did that, got involved in like the, the nutrition metabolism um, side of things. Actually by trade, uh, I'm a strength and conditioning coach. Um, so okay. I, I, uh, I did my UKSCA, so UK Strength and Conditioning Association accreditation in 2009. Um, after finishing, oh well, when I, when I did my master's degree, I got made head of strength and conditioning in Liverpool John Moores University in 2013 and then progressed into uh, head of sports performance. So strength and conditioning and nutrition and, and physio and things like that. Um, and then, yeah, a part of the way through research wise, research, I just got a bit more interested in the nutrition side of things. Um, and I also realized that they get paid a lot more money to do a lot less work. So that was a bonus. That was well. a help, I guess. Yeah. yeah you, know, you, have, you haven't got to be in the gym every day, coaching and programming and, and stuff like that. So yeah, af- after I finished my master's, I, I spent a year out. Uh, I actually worked still very, very long story worked with the Nigerian Olympic Taekwondo team for the London 2012 games. So we, um, we qualified two people for London. Uh, it was very fortunate to go to, so to train and, and well, not, not me personally train, but to experience working with some of the best WT Taekwondo teams in the world at the time. So professional Korean teams, the Korean national team, Chinese Taipei, uh, Mexico, places like that. And then we went to the uh, African Olympic qualifier in Cairo, qualified two people for the Games. Um, and then I was offered a PhD in 2012, just prior to getting the head of SNC job with uh, Professor James Morton and Graham Close, who are both really high-level guys in uh, in sports nutrition and research. So one of them was, is uh, head of nutrition for the England rugby team. Um, and the other one was head of nutrition for Team Sky when they won the five uh, Tour de France. So I was kind of mentored by them guys. And yeah, I did. Uh, my PhD was basically in making weight in combat sports. So I did five studies trying to figure out how we can make weight better and yeah, now I, um, like I say, I work as a research fellow, I work with performance solutions, and I also work as a private consultant, predominantly these days with um, uh, mixed martial arts and, and professional boxers. So guys in the UFC, Cage Warriors, Bellator, and then a couple of guys who are, who are preparing for world title fights. So yeah, that's the long, the long short version of, <laughs> of me, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen you. Like, have you? Are you working with UFC fighters? That many UFC fighters that have um, fights coming up. Yeah, fights coming so up? I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think they'll t- have any issues. So I work currently with a, a Liverpool fighter called um, Molly McCann, who's in oh, the yeah, UFC. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she was just out in Vegas. We're coming off the back of a, a loss, so we, she, she's having a bit of time out, and we're going to regroup and hopefully get get her back to where she needs to be, but. Um, she's doing she's doing quite well at the moment in the flyweight division. I uh, used to work with a fighter as well called Chris Fishgold uh, from Liverpool as well. Um, I've, I've worked with various fighters over the years in like different promotions. Uh, and at the moment, uh, boxing-wise, I'm working with a, um, a fighter who's prepared for a world title fight called Jazza Dickens, um, who's fighting Kid Kalahad for the, for the IBF world title. And I also work with another guy currently... Um, called um, Dennis McCann, who's a fighter down in uh, down in London. He's a bantamweight, so he's, he's preparing for a fight at the end of March. So, dependence on camps, different guys at different times. But those those are just some guys who people might might know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've pers- personally, I've I've heard of all of them. I've seen them fight a couple of times. Um, 
yeah, Dennis McCann's quite young. Am I right? Did saying that like? Yeah, yeah, he's he's a young guy, yeah. bantamweight. He's an absolute monster for the weight as well. So we we have to do. I would. This is the first camp I work with him, but we've got to do some clever stuff to to get him on weight. I suppose happy and healthy. Um, but yeah, no, he's a, he's a really, really, really good guy. I'm glad to be working with him. So uh, yeah, at, at times, to be honest with you, mate, it's um, it's different people at different times, and you know, sometimes you work with people and then you may not, and then you work with them again. It's um, yeah, and some people like Jazza Dickens. I've been working with him now and Molly for like two, three years, so they keep you on all the time. So yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one. And then I obviously do consultancy for some olympic teams and i've done research with like the the olympic taekwondo team over here in in gb and and stuff like that so i'm you know aware of all those guys and and the coaches and the athletes and stuff so yeah it's uh, it's a pretty cool job very cool I th- so i suppose maybe some touch on some of the nutrition kind of stuff and um, i suppose one thing and i think it's especially when it comes to to, to weight cutting is like, like obviously you have to reduce calories and the kind of a lot of things I think recently is where people want to reduce carbohydrates. And yeah. it's the thing that carbo- carbohydrates are the devil, I suppose, when it comes yeah. to, to losing weight and trying to make weight. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I suppose I'll, I'll give you a bit of a whistle-stop stop tour of what you really need to do to, to get somebody to make weight. So as, as we know, I mean, predominantly, um, am I right in your podcast is aimed at Taekwondo guys, is it? Majority Taekwondo, but I've had people from MMA on. I've had people like yeah, yeah, so. Yeah. It's mostly combat sports, but Taekwondo is probably the majority of people that listen. Yeah. So, so a lot of different combat sports, as we know, have a lot of different rules. Um, you know, some combat sports, uh, the weigh-ins a couple of hours before. Others, like professional MMA, it's like the day before. So, you might have two hours recovery. You might have have thirty hours recovery. Uh, some combat sports, it's just weighing, and then and you know you're good to go. Others. You know, so like professional boxing, they have like a in some promotions they have a reweigh rule in, and then in WT Taekwondo and and judo they have a five percent reweighing rule the following day, a randomized. So it depends on who you're working with, that that kind of sets what you're able and capable of doing. So if you're working with a BJJ athlete, for example, they have like a two-hour window of recovery prior to, um, you know, actually competing certain things that I might do with a professional MMA fighter, you can't do with them because there's not enough time to recover. Um, the human body metabolically is not like a light switch. It doesn't turn off and on. It takes time, you know, to, to do things, you know, particularly when, when you ingest foods, you know, or you ingest energy and macronutrients, micronutrients, it takes time to, to metabolize, to digest and metabolize and utilize. So if, if you were working with a guy who's maybe got a two hour window, you would probably want to get them down to their weight through more chronic means, you know, so dietary manipulating the acute stuff. So like real, you know, dehydration or, you know, manipulation of certain things that you would maybe do in an MMA fighter who's got 30 hours, you wouldn't necessarily do. Whereas like say with an MMA fighter, you would also chronically want to try and get them to the lowest weight that you could, but you've got a lot more room to play around with a lot more things. But Typically what you want to do, and, and this is, you've probably heard me talk on other podcasts and this is what drives me crazy is you can't, so you, that, that contextually gives you a strategy, but you can't put a strategy in place without knowing a lot of information. Um, you can, but you're guessing like anybody who does. So my, my advice to all, all the people who are listening is if you, if you're working with someone and they're not doing 
a fair amount of assessment. They're really guessing and their guess is probably about as good as yours, to be honest, you know, without without paying somebody to, to, to guesswork. So the first thing that we do that you really have to do is you have to figure out what their body composition is. So it's like the, the main reason why that's important is because somebody comes to me and they say, I want to make a specific weight. I need to establish body composition to know how they're, well, one, if it's capable for them to make the weight and two, how they're then going to make the weight, you know, so have they got reserves of fat mass that we can lose through diet and, and, you know, dietary manipulation and exercise. So calories in calories out to get them leaner. If they have great, that's, that's not a difficult thing to do. You know, do we actually need to maybe take away a little bit of their, their lean mass, their muscle, muscle tissue to get them to a specific weight sometimes with like MMA fighters and, and, and boxers, you have to try and do that just to be able to get them there do they have a really nice window to be able to do a lot of acute stuff? So, you know, if like a guy comes here and says, and I've had this in the past, the guy comes here and goes, I want to lose 10 kilos. I want to get from 68 to 58. You measure them on body composition. They're like, you know, 7% body fat. They've got nothing to lose. You do some calculations and they're literally going to have to lose like 12% of the body mass in like lean tissue. And they are, that's not healthy. Like it's dangerous. Um, it's possible. Everyone says, well, can you do it? And you're like, yeah, I can do it. But one, it's probably going to like damage them like health wise Two, they're going to be in absolutely no fit state to compete at the best. And three, in some of the research that we've, we've done, which we'll probably dig into a little bit later, you can either, you know, physically harm them or, or kill them as well. You know, because a lot of what we do, there's not a massive research base for this, you know, and another thing, red flag for anyone who's listening is anyone who calls himself a specialist or an expert be wary um i've been doing this for over a decade now i've i did a phd in it believe you me i am not an expert i've got a lot to learn about this i think a, a lot of us have so anyway first thing you really want to do is you want to establish that body composition is it feasible if it is feasible from the back of that what you need to establish is something called rest and metabolic rate so that's basically the amount of calories that somebody needs as an absolute minimum to operate on a daily basis. If you lay in bed all day, you did nothing at all, you would need that amount of calories for your, basically your function, you know, your, your, your overall body function to, to work as normal. The reason why that's important is a, if you start going below that, uh, you can cause a lot of problems. Number one, and uh, B Basically, you, you need that as a minimum in order to then, you know, safely and effectively make weight. So that's the second thing that they need to do. Those are the two key things that you really, really need to do to help somebody establish and make weight. If uh, you, there's other kind of sexy stuff you can put on top of that. So, you know, you may do like a substrate utilization assessment where you look at where people maximally burn fat in, you know, mapped against like running speed or heart rate or intensity zones. You may do fitness profile you may do lactate thresholds a lot of that stuff but those two for me are absolute key because they help you establish can they make the weight how can they make the weight and then the, the second one the rmr helps you establish what you need to do as a minimum from a dietary point of view in order for them to make weight safely and effectively so yeah i've rambled on for a little bit there mate i'm sorry but hopefully that gives you a bit of a bit of a backdrop of what what you kind of do Oh, no, that's all, that's all good. And then, so what are the type of ranges you would like to see that like somebody in? Because obviously, 
uh, from my own understanding is you kind of don't want to be cutting, I suppose, more than kind of 10 percent of body mass or body weight, lean body um, mass. Like you're going to kind of want to be in six to eight percent kind of range will be better. Yeah. First, first thing I want to do is probably classify terminology. So the term weight cutting to, to me and to, to people within the area constitutes something called active or rapid weight loss. So when you cut, cutting is basically the, the short term acute, maybe seven, you know, a couple of days, couple of hours leading into the event. That's, that's cutting. So that's cutting. Prior to that, you've got chronic weight loss which is, is weight management, basically. So that's modulation of, you know, trying to maintain muscle and lose fat mass. The two strategies are, are completely different. The, obviously, the way, the way you, you approach one to, to the way you approach the other. In terms of percentages, now, I have taken overall between chronic and active weight loss, so weight management, weight cutting, I've taken as much as 20% off somebody before utilizing both of them but they actually had it to lose they had fat tissue they had they had you know probably half of that was was lost through through chronic weight management and the other half was lost in in the cutting phase or the acute phase when we talk about percentages in the acute phase the honest answer to what you've asked is we don't know and it's very 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 individualized there is guidance out there to suggest that um well what what we do know for sure is if you cut over 2% of your body mass, particularly in dehydration, it starts to affect cognitive function. If you cut over 5%, it starts to affect physical function. So things like strength, power, sports specifics. And if you cut over 10%, that's when you start um, damaging things like organs, you know, your kidneys, your liver, you know, you might start damaging your brain. Um, any much further over that, you can. You, that's when you start going into the dangerous territory of death. So general guidance is we would never ever try and acutely cut more than 10 percent but for me in an ideal world the number that you're really looking at is below five percent because as long as you've got time to recover even two hours is enough in in certain instances two hours minimum is probably enough to recover five percent of dehydration you know of acute um, but yeah actual numbers nobody really knows and i can tell you from personal experience i i have guys who cut you know up to 10 percent you know professional mma guys the way we do it and then the refueling and, and rehydration strategy we put in place they're absolutely fine i've also worked with other guys if you do more than two percent they, they feel like rubbish to be honest they don't feel well at all so very 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 individual process the other thing as well is is the difference between men and women men are generally able to cut more than women purely from a perspective of they have more muscle mass and less fat mass generally. So they, they contain more water. So they're able to, so, so men generally have about 60% um, of total body water fluid, whereas women, and this is a generalization based on say a typical man, typical woman, women tend to, tend to have around about 55, 56%. So those numbers may change and may be lower for a woman. But again, maybe being completely honest, and you'll probably hear me say this a lot, we, we really don't know. We don't know what, it's not like we've got a, this is what you should do, and this is what you should do, and we know this is safe. It's guidelines more than absolute rules, is what I'd say. Um, and then yet in the, acute, in, the, in the chronic phase, you know, basically you can lose as much as, I mean, again, you could lose 25% of your mass if, you, if you're, you know, you've got a lot of fat mass on there, basically. So it, it all depends, but yeah, that acute phase is probably the the real dangerous bit. To be fair, yeah. 
So then, like, once once you've decided on a weight class, you've decided that this person can make the weight and you're starting with the, the chronic uh, weight loss phase, how do you balance, I suppose maybe this is the challenge, is how, do you, how you balance, obviously, going into a calorie deficit to reduce the body fat and also trying to fuel performance, fuel training sessions? This this is what I'm, I've spent the last 10 years, to be honest, mate, trying to figure out. Um we think at John Moore's, we've got a pretty nice formula. And like I say, we, we've done some research. I've published a couple of, you know, I published a paper 10 years ago on this called Making Weight in Combat Sports. And then we recently published a case study where we we, we employed the strategies that we put in place and, and showed, you know, like positive performance benefits. So, yeah, you establish body composition, as we said. You establish rest and metabolic rate. And let's say that the individual's rest and metabolic rate is 1,700 kilocalories, generally for a 60 70 kilo guy it'd be in and around 17 1800 kilocalories um what you then do is you would design a diet based on on that amount um you you would set it at that because then if we meet that we know that we're meeting the minimum required amount of calories that they need for for key physiological function go below that things can can start going wrong if, if it was a case of they were doing, say, if you put them on 1,700, but they were burning 5,000 calories and there's a huge, huge deficit, then, yeah, that's going to cause problems as well. So it is a balance. So generally, we put people on, on RMR because what I would say is, believe it or believe it not, because we've done a bit of work in this, combat sport guys don't expend probably as much as monitors say they do or what they think they do either. Um for instance, you know, a Tour de France cyclist might expend anywhere between six to 10,000 calories in, in a training day uh, based on the volume of work that they do. The highest I've ever seen, and this is in like real high pro level MMA guys, is maybe 2,000 calories energy expenditure, you know, in a day. Um, that's on top of rest and metabolic rate. So like overall expenditure would be like, you know, three, 4,000. So that's why I'm always happy to go at rest and metabolic rate with combat guys because they don't 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 get me wrong. Training is very hard and it's very tough, but if you remember, it's very intermittent. It's stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. You might do a two-hour session, but you if you actually look at the amount of work that's done in a two-hour session, it might only equate to say half, if that makes sense. So the energy expenditure is not that high, so we're always happy to go on that. So we know our calories are set at seventeen, eighteen hundred, as an example for this individual. What we then do is we want to give them enough protein throughout the day that will protect and maintain their lean mass. Unless we've identified that they need to lose lean mass, we want to maintain it. And typically what we do is we do it on a relative amount per kilogram of body mass. So the the, the number for protein is 1.5 to 2 grams of, of, of body mass. So if it was a 60 kilo guy, for example, or, or a 70 kilo guy, between 120 and 140 grams for the whole day. And what we would do with that is we want to kind of separate and dose that out throughout the day. So in an ideal world, we want like 20 to 40 gram, you know, feed. So it might be 30, 40 grams in, in meals and it might be, a, you know, additional 20 grams throughout the day. And just by constantly dosing that protein, we, we help protect lean mass alongside the training. And if you do any resistance training, you won't lose any lean mass, which is which is really good. Fats is something that you certainly don't want to eradicate from the diet. Again, it used to be, and I know we'll talk about carbs in a second, but a lot of people go really, really low fat, but fat is actually very important for a lot of things. Um, it helps you transport 
uh, fat soluble, soluble vitamins throughout throughout the body. It's a really, really good source of, of anti-inflammatory properties. A lot of your physiological systems, like people don't realize that your central nervous system is actually innervated by fat. Um, so it's, it's basically got a sheath of fat around it. Um, so this is where like when we're when we're deciding how low somebody can go um, we would never in a male go below six percent body fat because research has shown if you do that um, bearing in mind the brain is predominantly made of fat your you need fat around certain organs and tissues for for function if you go too low that's really bad in females it's higher it's about 12 percent so this this is why i was saying earlier on if we have a guy and they're trying to make weight and they're like seven percent well you know, what, what have you got to lose? You know, you've only got a bit to lose acutely, you know, so you've got to be really smart with that. So yeah, that'd be a minimum. But in terms of dietary fat intake, we tend to set that about one gram per kilo. So 60 grams of fat, because one gram of fat in, in um, relation to one gram of protein and carbs is, cal is calorically higher. So one gram of carbon protein equals four kilocalories per gram, whereas one gram of fat equals nine. So we don't want a lot of fat because it's very, very cal uh, calorie dense, but we need some fat. And then the big one that you talked about before, carbohydrates, basically once you program protein and once you program fat, everything else in that calorie allowance should be carbs. And that, just, that generally you want at least around three grams per kilo of carbohydrates. You know, so again, if it was at, um, if it was a 70 kilo guy, it'd be like 200, 200 plus grams of, of carbohydrates for the day. Now, carbs are, are massively important. Like I cannot stress the, the way the body works is like a computer system and the sense, the CPU, the central processing unit, the brain needs to constantly run all the time. And the body is really smart and really clever. When the CPU is not getting enough energy, it's not getting enough fuel, it starts to put things into power down mode, you know, like sleep sleep mode, basically. And it, it tends to do that quite well when it's not getting enough energy and particularly when it's not getting enough carbs. The key, um, the real, real key fuel in the body, particularly for the brain, is glucose. It needs a constant supply of glucose. And no matter what you eat, whether it be carbohydrates, fats or proteins, there are processes within the body that will turn that fuel into glucose. Um, it just so happens that carbohydrates in the forms of glycogen when it's metabolized is very easily converted into glucose. Fat takes a bit of time to be converted into glucose. Protein takes an, e an even inordinately longer amount of time to convert to glucose. So what I, what I would say to you on that basis is, um, ketogenic diets which is very popular in combat sports at the minute and particularly low carb high fat diets are not the best idea in a sport where a you need a lot of fuel rapidly and and quickly for intermittent high intensity bouts of work one and two in a sport where you need to cognitively be thinking you know very quickly you know and tactically and things like that so um I, I'm not on the low carb bandwagon. Uh, I definitely think there's a place for it generally. I think in um, you know maybe in, in in general public or in certain sports there may be something in and around that. But for high intensity combat sports, trust me, if no one takes anything, anything away from this that I've said, don't go on ketogenic, low carb, high fat diets. Just a really bad idea. You need carbohydrates in and around training to really specifically fuel the high intensity work that you're going to do. Um, if you're doing low intensity work, you, you might not need as much carbohydrate. So going back to your question, 
protein, as we say, you'll dose throughout the day. Fat, you'll dose throughout the day. You predominantly get your fat in your meals. Carbs, you can actually periodize around training sessions. So when I'm working with like professional guys who might do three sessions a day, let's say they do a steady state run in the morning, they do sports specific training in the afternoon, and then they do S&C in the evening. We would very much in the morning probably do that training fasted. Or if they have anything, it'll just be with like protein. The real key reason is if we're, if we're in a low carbohydrate state, we, we're predominantly utilizing fat as a fuel source during that exercise. And if we're trying to lose fat, that's a good strategy. Then when they finish that, they'll have a, a nice, um, you know, decent meal with a good, good bout of, pro, sorry, a, a good amount of protein and fat and probably a good amount of carbs to help fuel the, the afternoon session where they've got to really work. After that, they might have a, a moderate carb. They might have a bit of high carb again prior to S and C, and in the evening prior to going to bed, they might go low carb again. So you can you can do it like that, or dependent on the individual athlete, you can also have it set throughout the entire day. Some people like it more more and less around training. Other people just like it normal. But again, final point, and I know I've rambled on again, but hopefully it's good information. The meals that you have can be either smaller or larger. So I work with some fighters and they're like, I want three big meals a day. So out of the 1800 calories, we'll split that into breakfast, lunch, dinner, big meals. And we'll do it like that. I have other fighters who like, I, I want to eat like, I want to eat often, you know, I want to feel like I'm eating all the time. So we might split it into five or six feeds across the day. And um, both of them result in the same, the same thing, because this is, this is probably going to, going to sound like a real cop out now, mate, to be honest. Every single diet on planet Earth, ketogenic, low carb, high fat, Atkins, paleo, whatever, it's it's calorie, it's it's um, energy balance. What they all basically do in, in one different way or another is basically more is going out than is going in. It's just energy balance. Um, so ultimately, no matter how you do it, you will make weight. But in having the right amount of those calories, meeting RMR, enough protein, enough fat, and then carbs, you will lose weight, feel good, feel, you know, feel full, have good appetite and, um, you know, be able to train efficiently. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the way we, we, we tackle it in, in our world. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, every diet, if you're going to go on a diet that cuts out a food group, then of course you're going to go into a deficit and you're going to lose weight. But like that, again, it's not necessarily the way. And, um, yeah. I was only having a conversation with a guy the, the other day, same, like, I've had people from the Taekwondo Irish team come to me kind of the last week or I've a little bit of weight to lose the last week and I'm going, okay, well, we'll do a few bits, maybe with some water or whatever, some salt, fiber, and you're kind of saying, we'll, we'll cut out carbs on this day to reduce, um, you know, like that, reduce glycogen and that. And they're kind of saying, I haven't had carbs in two months. And I'm kind of going, you've kind of, like, yeah. what are you doing? Like, <laughs> Oh, well, let's you know, say everything we talk yeah, everything we talked about there is in the chronic phase. So that yeah. would be for us to lose fat mass, maintain muscle and, and get the weight down. The acute phase, you've already mentioned a few things there. The acute phase is a real interesting one because there's a lot of strategies out there. Um, a very good friend of mine, Dr. Reed Real, who's head of nutrition at the UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai, he's done some amazing research in this work. And in fact, we're, we're just about to publish a, a paper together on weight making in female athletes, um, which discusses some of this. The strategies that we have available to us, believe it or believe it not, don't have a large research base of evidence in and around combat sports. So we can do things exactly like you've mentioned, 
reducing muscle glycogen is one strategy. The, the reason why we do that in the acute phase and we might cut carbs down in, in that phase is one, every gram of glycogen is, is bound to three mils of water. So if you lose a gram of glycogen, you lose water. So basically, probably the resultant loss of glycogen doesn't result in weight loss. It's the loss of glycogen that you lose body water. That's that's where the weight loss comes from. But honest answer, to be, to, to be fair with you, mate, no one's ever studied that. It's an assumption not a like like not an established thing you know it's it's just kind of like you know physiologically one gram of glycogen three mils of water you know and, and it's an assumption we we're having discussions now where we're actually saying is that a good idea because when you reduce even for there's been some studies showing that when you limit the amount of carbohydrate that you have even for a matter of days so let's think of a fight week now and you know you go low carb to reduce glycogen your capacity to utilize glycogen when you reload it becomes diminished you know so me and me and professor james morton have had conversations and we were kind of like well maybe the strategy isn't to reduce carbs maybe it's to like enhance carbs so have more like 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 more carbs because the other thing that we would do is you would try and reduce glycogen, but you would also do that in line with uh, low fiber and low residue foods. So basically foods that are going to pass through the gut. And the reason why we would do that is, is because a lot of if, you know food that's fibrous gets held in the gut and that can, that can be a lot, a lot of weight. And again, you have fluid with interstitial fluid within the gut that when, when there's, there's fecal matter in there, it's bound to it. So if we, if we take low fiber, low residue foods and it clears your gut, we assume again that it will will help you lose weight. All the evidence from that at the moment comes from medical colonoscopy papers, non in combat sports. No one's no one's actually ever definitively showed in in a sporting population. Oh, you go on a low residue, low fiber diet, you lose weight. I can probably tell you anecdotally, and you can probably say anecdotally, well, I've done it and, and you've lost weight, but you know, there, there's there's no proof. To that regard, so it's just something that we do, but it, it is something that I think we should do, and it, it would work, and it would, you know, it would reduce it. But again, the the reducing glycogen one, we're, we're trying to get our head around that a little bit. So more on that, and then the next stage, if you've reduced glycogen to release bound water, if you've reduced gut content to release release bound water, interstitial fluid, that helps you lose a little bit of mass. The next thing you want to then do is play on your your sodium electrolyte balance. The typical one that all combat sports do and um, that everybody's probably experienced at some point in their life, which I still have PTSD about, is dehydration. And you'll do that through a lot of different means. Um, some people will um, limit fluids. Most people do. Some people will go into heated environments. Some people will exercise in sauna suits and things like that. Again, the research in that at the minute, very loose. Believe it or believe it not, the, um, the, the best research group in the, at the moment who's doing some of the best work in this is actually in Ireland in, forgive me for this, I think it's UCD. I think it is. Um, there's, a, there's a few, there's a few uh, colleges in Dublin. I get yeah, there's, there's DCU and UCD, so it, it's easy yeah, to mix them up. It's one of them to do. So it's a guy called John. He's, good, good, he's a mate of mine called John Connor. So John, if you're listening, forgive me, mate. Whichever one you work at, you you guys are doing the um, doing good work. So they're doing research at the minute, um, looking at hot baths. I think that's um, DCU. Because DCU, a guy, I think, because so, yeah. one of the guys, if anyone on the podcast, and he's been on the to come to him, he was involved. There was a paper recently published, of, I think, about uh, yeah. like salt in the bath and does that, and, and the, temp- right, and yeah, the so temperature. 
Um, yeah, so, so yeah, it's DCU. Do, yeah, doing brilliant work, brilliant work on temperature of, of the bats. Uh, they're doing brilliant work on salts. You know, so the the first paper that they did basically showed when you add salts in, it doesn't do bugger all basically so yeah save you and don't buy epsom salts just get into the bloody water you know so um and then there's been some research recently coming out showing so i sent this to, to geordie sullivan who's at who's at the fight dietitian again this wasn't in combat sports per se but showing um the differences between saunas and hot bats on cerebral it's uh, like cerebral function so so like brain function and things and again it's far better when you're trying to dehydrate to use a method where your head is not in the heat saunas don't allow you to do that um hot bats do so i i would always sway now typically culturally when i used to compete sauna was my go-to i'm sure sure you've done it and other guys have done it bloody awful it just fries your brain it's throbbing like heart beating through your chest so saunas are not a great means so what we we typically do they make you sweat but what we what i would always recommend now is to do bats but yeah, going around the houses, mate, a lot of what we do in the acute phase is there's not a lot of evidence. John, DCU is doing some good stuff. Some of it comes from just general research. Um, but yeah, you know, things like low residue diets, not a lot of research in sport and populations, reduced muscle glycogen, not a lot of research in sport and populations. We've got a lot of work to do that. So this is the part where we have to be really careful in what we use because we don't know. And as I going around the houses, going back to what you said before, you know, what's the recommendation? 5%, 8%, 10%. We, we don't know. We, we really do not know. I don't think there's a general number you can put on it because it's so individual. Um, but those are some of the strategies that you would do. Reduce muscle glycogen, but that one's a, a bit out there at the moment. Um, limit limit fiber, fiber intake. So reduce uh, low residue, low fiber diet, low sodium with that as well to try and manipulate fluid electrolyte balance. And then the only other one really to talk about in that is dehydration. So limiting fluids and, and heated environments. I tend to prefer passive. So things like bats versus sauna suits, you know, and exercising because you should be tapering in that phase. You should be relaxing. You know, it should be about making weight, not about exercising and using energy. You want to try and try and save the energy for the competition. So passive means, and then the only other one, which I'm sure a lot of people would have heard about is water loading, um, which again, Dr. Reed Real, um, like I said, my friends did, did a fantastic paper on from the Australian Institute of Sport, basically showing that if you use 100 mils per kilo, so for instance, if you're a 70 kilo guy, drink seven liters per so many days and then reduce the fluid, what you basically do is, you've got to find balance between electrolyte and fluids. And when you knock that out of kilter and then try and balance it, you lose fluid, but one study. And I think the loss was like one, 2% body mass. So it wasn't, you know, and there's a lot of stuff around that where, you know, is it potentially harming your kidneys and cause it could it cause something called hyponatremia, which is like too much fluids. And so, yeah, I know, I know this is a very, you know, science, science, scientist answer to be honest with you jamie but we we don't know with a lot of that stuff it's just anecdotes and we've got a lot of research to do on combat sports like say john and the guys at dcu are probably leading the forefront at the minute in the hot bats and reed did some stuff in in the acute world but we've got a lot to go um one thing i can tell you zorlo is um we're doing a low residue study in john moore's at the moment we're just about to start it within covid <laughs> it's one of the studies that we're trying to do in, in the covid environment but yeah we're basically going to look at do low residue diets 
first of all, do they even cause weight loss? So we're just going to get a load of guys to do, a, you know, five days of a normal diet, little washout period, five days of a low fiber, low residue diet and see if, if it causes weight loss. If it does, then mechanistically we'll start looking in like the gut and things like that. But yeah. Um, so again, another long winded answer, as you can probably see from me, mate. Um, but yeah, a lot of things we can do, but it's on a very individual basis and there's not a lot of evidence base. And like I say, not attacking anybody specifically, but anybody who kind of calls themselves a specialist in and around that area or an expert in and around that area. Um, I know the real experts in this area across the globe uh, and not one of them regards themselves as an expert. So anybody who calls themselves that, uh, that's that's a red flag moment to be fair. Yeah, be careful, be yeah. wary. I suppose, like, like you said, it's, it's like there's, when people run these kind of protocols like something happens they lose weight so there must be you know something that happens but i suppose like the challenges as well when you run all of these when you do like three or four different things at the same time as well what actually worked and then to trying to isolate and and does that repeat itself over and over to see does there's it definitely work in, there's something in every strategy we've talked about and again when you think of the physiology reducing muscle glycogen there's probably something in it because it is bound by water so you know but it's just never been examined, you know, for efficacy. Um, you know, but I can tell you anecdotally it works. But because we do a lot of these things in combination, though, I say it works. One thing I've never done is gone, we're just going to reduce glycogen, does it work? We're just going to reduce fiber, does it work? The combination of all of them gets you to make It might just be general dehydration that makes you lose the weight, you know what I mean? So, yeah, what I'm saying is, there's something in this, but in isolation, we don't know because it's never been done. Um, but no, all those strategies work. And then, yeah, we're, you know, really starting to think now, you know, is reducing glycogen, if you reduce the capacity to use it in competition, is that a good idea? You know, if we do a study and we go, reducing muscle glycogen results in 1% loss of body mass, does that really offset the fact that, okay, then we'll put you on a low residue, low fiber, high carbohydrate diet? that will have you full of energy for the competition, you know, so we probably need to look into that. And then, you know, one thing I can tell you from, for, you know, in, in terms of the amount of weight you can, you can hold within your gut. Um, I had an athlete once who was getting ready to, to compete at a major tournament. He had to, he had to be 68 kilos. We had him on dietary manipulation. This was years ago now when I was a quite an early, early practitioner and there wasn't a lot of guidance. 72 and a half kilos, 72 and a half for, for weeks. Nothing was happening and we were manipulating his diet and nothing was changing. And just by by coincidence, I said to him, when was the last time you went to the toilet? And he was like, probably about two weeks ago. I'm really struggling to go to the toilet. So we 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 he went to the doctor and he got given some some laxatives, some natural senna. Um, he took that and the following day he weighed 68.9 kilos from 72.5. So that's how much literally how much crap pardon my language you can, uh, it's you can all good. so there's something in this there is something in it i can tell you there's something in it but yet we just need to look into this stuff but in the past there's never really been an interest whereas now i think there's a lot more interest in this sort of stuff and you know as you know with ufc and pro boxing and and, and even stuff like you know taekwondo and, and other you know combat sports there's a lot more interest so there's a lot more chance for us to do the research now. Because in the past, if I'd have asked, you know, if I'd have gone and said, oh, I want to do this study and apply for funding, because studies are not cheap, people would just be like, get lost. Whereas now, because there's interest, you know, you, 
got a better chance of doing it really. And just with the glycogen, because I, I, when somebody goes keto, I'm right in saying it can take maybe 7, 10, 14 before the person yeah, is actually yeah, keto. So if it takes that long to deplete glycogen, then yes. how long does it actually take to replenish? Because like if it takes to totally deplete it and go keto takes so long and you're only getting 24 hours to try and um, replenish glycogen, can you do it in 24 hours? You can reduce glycogen in a matter of hours through exercise. Um, through exercise... So if you do bouts of real high intensity work, carbohydrate, you know, with, with no carbohydrate, you can reduce glycogen to seriously low levels in a matter of hours. Um, so this, this is some of what we do in, in like the laboratory when we're looking at low carbohydrate trials. Dietary manipulation of carbohydrate to reduce glycogen. Honestly, if I, if I said up front to you now, I don't know. There's probably literature in and around that, but I've, I've never read it. But it would probably take days because utilizing the reason why it happens in a matter of hours during exercise is the contraction of the muscle the metabolism is using the glycogen within the muscle but when you're not using the glycogen so at rest just moving around it probably takes a long time so the replenishment of glycogen depends on how low you are and how you've lost it um, and then to be honest with you it can take 24 hours days plus this is where like reducing glycogen for example in a bjj athlete or reducing glycogen in a in a day of weigh-in prior to competing probably not a good idea because there's not enough time for you to ingest food to metabolize it to store it as energy you know it's not a good strategy so short-term weigh-ins glycogen manipulation is not a good strategy um you know and say this is what i'm saying ketogenic you know if you imagine doing a ketogenic diet all that time and then trying to replenish you like not not a smart idea whereas if it was with a ufc fighter so when i'm working with molly we might do that strategy because we've basically got 30 hours after the weigh-in to fuel refeed you know for the glycogen to, to be for the carbohydrates to be you know digested metabolized stored so it's um the strategy is context dependent you know if you've got a short you know a short window between weighing and competition versus a longer um, window between weighing and competition versus a, you know, cause one, one thing I say as well is you could use glycogen manipulation in a short term way into fight window. If you have one fight that might be, I don't know, you know, like a, a typical t- a three, two minutes because you don't need the glycogen. It's not that hard. You know, you can, you can get through it. But if it was a day of weigh-in for a Taekwondo tournament where you're going to be competing from eight in the morning until bloody, you know, midnight, as, as you know, Taekwondo is a crazy sport, isn't it? We, we do all our fights on one day. You need, you're going to need energy for that. So glycogen manipulation is probably not a good idea, you know, because you need, you probably need stored energy to get throughout the day. Um, so yeah, mate, another typical long-winded answer where we've got an idea, but we don't know. Like we need to do a lot more research. Yeah, but look, it's like everything. Like when you when you get into into the weeds, but like it, it it all depends. You know, it's it's like it doesn't matter what the topic is, whether it's nutrition, if it's strength and condition. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. Once you get into the real details of it, it it depends. Is a lot of the answer. I think sometimes. Absolutely, and science a lot of the time is catching up to practice, but practice also needs to be informed by science, and it's only really, you know, the the big. The, the, the big money research in science, to be honest with you, mate, is in and around health. Um, so that's where you get your big grants to study things. 
sport, you don't tend to get a lot of funding or the might, you know, so who's going to give me, you know, doing that, doing a glycogen manipulation study where we actually looked at that as combat sports athletes do it with biopsies and, you know, a, a serious amount of, you know, analysis, you're looking at like tens of thousands, if not hundred thousand pound study. Um, who the hell cares enough for us to, to, to pay us that money to do us that study? That's, that's the issue to be honest with you at the moment. But um, no, it, the exciting thing is there's a lot more to learn and come out. The, like say the, the negative thing is, is that we're probably employing a lot of stuff that may or may not work. It's just a case of, for me, as long as what's being employed is conducive to athlete health, and benefits performance, then it's it's all good. But yet, um, culpability. You know, if you're working with someone and you do any of this stuff, and they they become physically physically harmed, or you know, in worst case scenario, they die. You know, there's there's serious issue there. Yeah. So sure. careful. Yeah. In terms of supplements, then what what sort of supplements would you recommend? In terms of, <laughs> I presume. I thought it was like I know there's a lot of study done. I suppose like creatine is is the most researched supplement out there, and that and would there be anything else, I suppose, like outside of that in terms of like, that you would recommend? Yeah, creatine is an interesting one. It's it's very widely researched. The benefits of it are, are hugely publicized. It, it's definitely a performance enhancing supplement, you know, so you want to take a 20 gram loading dose for, for five days. And then after that, you would take five grams each subsequent day, dose, dosed across. Um, creatine is a fantastic one. It improves outcomes of strength and power, which in combat sports is, is brilliant. The only trade-off with creatine is that it tends to come with heavy uh, total body water retention. Um, so a lot of people who take creatine actually put weight on because they, they withhold uh, water that they wouldn't normally hold on to. So in a combat sport where you might be trying to lose weight, not necessarily a good idea, but but certainly benefit. Um, another one is, is called beta-alanine. Um, so beta alanine, if anyone's ever taken a pre-workout, that's the one where you get itchy skin. So paresthesia, you know, you take it and you're like, whoa, and you get that that real itch. Um, beta alanine is a fantastic one because it's basically called a buffering agent. So the hydrogen ions that that are caused from um, the increases in in muscle acidity, um, so pyruvate during high intensity exercise, that muscle burn that you get, it helps buffer those ions basically. Um, so it basically allows you to put in more high intensity work for longer periods of time. Again, that, that's it's an interesting one because you should take around about six grams per day dosed in four 1.5 um, gram um, doses throughout the day. It doesn't taste very nice. So you want to probably blend it or mix it with something. I used to have a, a former athlete who used to just take it take it neat and I was like oh my god it's absolutely disgusting but that's definitely one that works and there's there was a really nice study showing that that it, that enhanced performance in boxing um so I would definitely put you know encourage combat sports athletes to go on that one caffeine is an absolute brilliant one but it all depends on your caffeine sensitivity when I was competing I was deliberately kept off caffeine even to this day um, if I have one cup of coffee, I'm, I'll be awake until next week. <laughs> I'm really like caffeine sensitive. I don't don't drink, I do drink coffee, but I drink decaf because I'm because I was never allowed to have caffeine when I was younger. I'm very highly sensitive to it. So yeah, I, I used to get given caffeine capsules. So in in the back end of making weight, you know where you're a bit tired and fatigued, take caffeine and it, it just gives you that buzz. And then definitely during um, competition, it's a great one as well. Uh, the problem with taking it in coffee is different coffee contains different amounts of caffeine. 
some lower, some higher. It's a bit difficult to, to judge. So with caffeine capsules, for example, we want to be taking three, around about three migs, three milligrams per kilogram. So times three milligrams. Per, that's milligrams, not grams. <laughs> had, if you take grams, that's heart attack death material. So okay. huge, huge disclaimer for the listeners, three milligrams, not grams. If anyone takes grams now and tries to sue us, Jamie, we're, we're covered. <laughs> we're covering uh, lovely stuff. Yeah, yeah, caffeine's caffeine's obviously a great one. Outside of those, yeah, the, uh, there's there's good evidence for something called sodium bicarb, so basically bicarbonate of soda. Problem with it's basically an alkaline. So again, we said you know uh, the acidosis that you get within the muscle. You take an alkaline, a buffering agent. The problem with it is it gives you a really bad stomach. Um, and you know, for for individuals competing in white suits, that's never a good idea. No, not at all. <laughs> so there's something in it. And a very good friend of mine in Edge Hill University, just up the road, Dr. Andy Sparks is doing some great work in, in that at the moment. So yeah, there's 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 promise in that, but it just the the benefit, sorry, the I suppose the negative far outweighs the benefit with it at, at the moment. And then the other one probably is um nitrates, so beetroots. So people have heard a lot about um beetroot so basically there's been a, a, a good bit of evidence showing that so basically nitrates in the form of you know in in so organic nitrates within things like beetroot and, and rhubarb when you ingest them nitrate gets converted to some converted to something called nitrite and that's what basically opens up your 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 vascular system so it allows more blood flow more blood flow more oxygen more oxygen enhanced performance but in intermittent sports like combat sports no real evidence it's predominantly an endurance sports um but no the the big the big five for me would be whey protein if you need it if you're not getting enough in your diet caffeine creatine um beta alanine and maybe sodium bicarb they're they're kind of your go-tos really and then obviously um another key one in combat sports post weigh-in would be your oral rehydration solutions um, you know, your energy gels and things like that, that will help get the, you know, carbohydrate powders and gels and stuff are absolutely fantastic for after weigh-in because they just help you get the energy in quickly. Um, but yeah, outside of that, the evidence basis for other stuff is still being being looked into at the moment. Cool. And just in terms of creatine, obviously you said that, it, you know, like it does um, cause it a can, bloating. Yeah. Would, would, you, would you cut that out then, we'll say, in the coming into the acute phase? Would you reduce it? Um, I, I, I'll, I'll be totally honest and upfront with you. I don't use it with any of my fighters. Um, it's something that I actually, I was funnily enough, I was having a conversation with my my partner and colleague about this the other day, um, about us looking at like maybe a dosing strategy, you know, that might be different that we could utilize for combat sport guys where you don't get that weight gain and could stay on it consistently. But yeah, you know, I, I don't know. The honest answer is I don't know how quickly you might lose that total body water retention when you come off it. So I don't know whether it's like, yep, yeah, load, follow it, and then seven days before come off it and you'll lose that. Don't know. Gen- genuinely don't know. Um, I could I could try and be a, a you know, a, a smart guy and give you an answer, mate, but I'd be lying. Yeah. <laughs> so genuinely don't know. Yeah, I suppose it probably comes about down to, again, it depends on the person to some degree with no research yeah. to back it up. Yeah. Yeah, strategy, try it. If it works, you know, Probably not something you want to try around an important competition, but you know maybe go on it, come off it, see see how your body body weight fluctuates and stuff. But um, 
yeah, with a lot of guys, if I if I ever put them on something and they seen the weight go up by a kilo or two, they'd be like, "Get me! I'm not taking that. Yeah, get me off." You know yeah, what I mean? So the number and the scales kind of rules everything. You know, <laughs> yeah. no matter how much you try and convince somebody that the number is just an abstract concept and it's all about you know the end points. Um, I mean, to be honest, mate, it took me ten years to stop weighing myself every day after I retired. So. Old old habits die hard in in a weight making sport for sure. Yeah, I think everybody's the same, isn't it? It's get up, go yeah. to the toilet, step on the scale. It's, it's just it's the morning you routine, know, isn't it? It's the you morning know, routine. You know, yeah. Get up, don't think anything. Go to the toilet, weigh with us, you know, weigh weigh with nothing on or you or minimal clothing, and let's see where we're at. Yeah, yeah. no, for sure. Uh, I suppose just before we finish up, one more question. Um, I tend to ask everybody when they come on is if you had. I know you you'd be a fan of obviously of fight sports. If if you had to pick a favorite fighter to watch. Who would you pick? That's a great question. Across all combat sports, or can I have a few? Uh, go on, should we give you a few? <laughs> okay, all right. Um, yeah, in, I mean, yeah, in 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 boxing, uh, I kind of like at the moment. Again, I know this is probably a biased thing. I uh, I really enjoy watching the guy I work with, Jazza Dickens. I think he's a, you know, he's. He, all of his fights at the minute are going the distance, but he's just a. I just appreciate good boxing. He's he's a damn good boxer, but I mean, across the spectrum, I love all you know. Mayweather is fantastic, and Pacquiao, and the usual suspects. I love Tyson Fury. I actually didn't like the guy, and then when he won the probably I was a convert. I used to think he was just some big loudmouth, and then he won the world title. Well, it's and, the same, yeah. The, even our own Klitschko. I even did the Klitschko fight. Uh, I was hoping he'd lose yeah. the Klitschko, and then the whole yeah, comeback no, story. It's kind of I'm a big fan though. And, Man, I love him. I love him. I think he's brilliant. You know, it's he's great to watch. So in boxing, I like watching good boxers. Uh, but yeah, I love love watching Jazz. He's he's a great boxer. He's really entertaining. And I think probably that more comes from the fact that you've had some involvement. You know, when you watch him do it, it's it's great. In MMA, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't use the the typical one of like um, you know Khabib. But Khabib's great to watch. I, lo- I love watching him and stuff. And I really enjoy watching McGregor. Uh, I didn't enjoy watching the last one because I thought it was going to be a, a better fight, to be honest. But I do enjoy watching McGregor. You know, just like, you know, like, I think the Aldo years, McGregor, I, I loved it. It was just poetry to watch. He was just so good. And But again, I think that comes from a striking perspective, you know, when you're a your taekwondo guy and the way he used to kick and his movements. And, you know, I really used to enjoy watching him. Um, and then in taekwondo, probably in the Olympics, I haven't watched it for a while. Um, I don't even know who the hell's still competing at the minute. But I think I again I used to really enjoy the, I suppose the you know the energetic crazy guys. Like there was a a Turkish guy called Servet Tazagul back in the day who's like really spinny and doubles and um, I mean again not being from a, an ITF background but more of a WT, you know this whole front leg checking game mainly because I'm rubbish at it and I've got no <laughs> I've got no, no capacity to do it. So if I did Taekwondo these days, I'd probably get beat up by a five-year-old. But um, yeah, I have an appreciation for that, but I really loved loved the guy back in the day. So yeah, probably again, I haven't really answered the question, mate, but I just love good combat sports. Yeah, yeah. Any kind of fighter, you know, your, your stalemates or your, you know, people who are just like, avoiding like everyone you know it doesn't always have to be a war i like tactical fights but i like wars as well you know it's um as long as it's entertaining and it's just two guys give well two two guys or girls giving their all it's 
it's great, you know. So and then yeah, I haven't really mentioned mentioned many many females in there, but you know MMA. I think you know uh, 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 Amanda Nunes and, and Valentina Shevchenko are absolutely tremendous. I, I love watching. I love watching the uh, the Terry Harper fight against um, against Jones. the little fighter. Yeah, Tash Jones yeah, was great fight. One of, one of, um, in fact, I actually think one of the best fights in combat sports ever, and I would I would hold my hand up was a. Uh, Joanna, uh, Joanna Yedinjerchik versus um, Valentino. Oh, yeah, Shevchenko. Oh, no, not Shevchenko, the Chinese. Oh, oh sorry. Yeah, Wang Zeli. Sorry, Willy Zeng. Yeah. It was what a fight, mate. That was, that was unreal, probably yeah. one of the best MMA fights of all time. Uh, but I love those guys. And yeah, boxing, um, obviously, Katie Taylor. I watch every one of her fights. She's fantastic. So yeah, mate, I just love, love all fights. Yeah. All fights. But if it was to meet one, if it was to meet a fighter, it's it's got to be it's got to be the greatest you know to sit down and have a conversation with 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 Muhammad Ali would have been you know to get 30 minutes of time with him and pick his brains would be yeah yeah I was only thinking yeah I was only thinking that, that yesterday if I had to pick a fighter that I think I think it will be Ali yeah just because like you said like just how you yeah. know rumble in the jungle how do you even do that you know what what's what's somebody's mindset to walk in and and go and do you know just pick his brains and talk about you know how he thinks and feels and yeah that would be that would be a dream come true he he truly was the greatest without doubt yeah i only even watched back the trailer in manila there recently as well and oh my god that was just oh it was yeah, unbelievable fights, war uh, struggling to get tyson and, and uh aj I'm, to even fight each other and I them know, guys were doing it on a monthly basis so yeah, the great days are gone, unfortunately. Yeah. They're gone. Let's hope they can get that fight on and we get to see it and appreciate Hopefully. it. Hopefully, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks, man, for coming on. There's, I think there's lots of lots of good bits to take away there and uh, yep. some good things that people can take. So uh, thanks, man, for coming on and giving your time. Oh, no, welcome. It's always, always a pleasure. I mean, there's no point in... Um, I always say there's no point in all this information being stuck in academic papers and not being out there for people to utilise. So always, always happy to talk about it and... If anyone is is interested, they can they can check me on Instagram. Um, so my handle, I think, is at CLE Sposci. So S P O S C I. So check that out. I'm always popping a few bits on, or people can get in touch and stuff. So uh, yeah, no more more than happy, mate. And thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Lovely stuff. Take care. So all the best. All Thanks the best, again. mate. Take it easy.